Hi, I'm Joe Quirk. Welcome to the Blue Frontiers podcast about all my favorite things, seasteading, the environment, special economic zones, and innovation in science, technology, governance, and society itself. Should I start recording now in case we want to maybe put some parts? Okay, tell me how you got involved in complexity. (laughs) I got involved through art, actually. Um, So those things you see there in the background are some paintings of mine. I used to paint, and I used to paint fractals. And I was really, really interested in the aesthetical side of fractals, just aesthetics. And then I found out, this was many years ago, that fractals were studied by complexity. Then I made chaos, then I changed degrees to political science because I saw the implications that it could have if we change the topology of our political systems. So I was really interested in studying topologies and then I moved to how can this network mediated world, how can we make better decisions in this network mediated world using tools like the internet. And then I realized that although it is important that we have these systems that allow us to connect better uh, on a non-physical manner, the territory is still very important. And that's why I went to seasteading, because I saw in seasteading the possibility of taking a step further uh, the political things or aspects that I have learned through complexity. That's, that's how about okay. you? How about me? Yeah. So I've been working in complex <laughs> system science for 30 years. So. Oh, wow. So you are the head of New England Complex Systems Institute, next You also uh, wrote a very influential book on complexity called Dynamics of Complex Systems. And, And I want to introduce you as the person who predicted the Arab Spring even before it happened. How are you? Yes, okay. Yes? Yes, I mean, we sent a report to the government saying that there was a high chance of social unrest and political instability, and, and it happened. And what happened with the report? Um, you know, I don't think very many people looked at it, you know. Wow. But, um, but the main thing was that it was, the prediction was very directly based upon the challenge of increasing food prices. Yes. Tell us a bit about the link between food prices and uh, riots, for example. So, um, first of all, food and riots and revolutions is surely not new. So, I don't think that that's something that we invented, right? The French Revolution, the Russian Revolution. And I don't know if everyone knows about the revolutions of 1848, the revolutions from Europe. And um, so, so we saw that food prices increased in 2006 and seven, and they actually led to riots and riots around the world. And then they were increasing again in 2010 and 11. And 2010 was kind of when we sent in the report saying we're, we were in trouble. And something similar happened when you also sent a report about also predicting the financial crisis. You did a study in 2007 uh, saying that we should implement or bring back certain measures due to the instability of the financial market, but the SEC thought that there wasn't sufficient statistical evidence. Yeah, it's, um, so it's, the, the sequence in this case is 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 reversed though we didn't say it until after the financial crisis started so we didn't really predict it we postdicted it we <laughs> that, that, that led to it um, in a number of different ways uh, one of them indeed was that the SEC removed a regulation called the uptick rule okay in uh, July of 2007. And that rule 
was is a rule that was designed to stabilize the market against manipulation, but also just against collective selling, uh, short selling. And once it was removed, the market was much more unstable. And very shortly thereafter, it uh, underwent lots of crashing behavior that was, you know, kind of unpleasant for people who um, owned companies, for people who were short sellers. They were pretty happy. Yes. Another direct involvement that I know you've had uh, with addressing government-related issues is that you were invited by the U.S. Army Corps to study or to evaluate the reaction to Katrina. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So um, uh, to be clear, um, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, who are that are responsible for dealing with major flooding, uh, and in particular had developed the systems of levees and so on in New Orleans. And then once Katrina happened, they created an entirely new set of, of interventions. Okay. I was not involved in designing or really evaluating those interventions directly, but um, we were involved with them in bringing complex systems insights into their efforts. And I went to New Orleans and I toured the incredible uh, effort that they were putting in to improve the situation. And we also made some uh, suggestions of how to um, create a system that was less um, fragile. So what the system created is that if you, you know, when, when you design a system to prevent an extreme event um, from creating disaster, what typically happens is you create a system that it, it prevents the you know, events. So it's flooding, prevents flooding, you have a, a, a wall, right? But once the water gets above the wall, then you have a catastrophe. There's, you, know, you don't have any way of, of, of dealing with it at that point. And what we suggested was that the that the system be designed so that once you get to the point of flooding, that it not catastrophically fail. We call it soft failure. Yes. So the the idea of soft failure is that you don't have to make it rigid so that once it fails, you have catastrophe. You make it fail gracefully so that at the beginning of the failure you can still deal with it and not have a catastrophe. That also, uh, that type of complex systems engineering that is adaptive also helps with scalability and therefore with management, right? With the management of the response. Yes. Um, you know, the scaling behaviors of systems are are pervasively important in understanding complex systems and how they, um, what happens when you look at larger and larger parts of a system or what happens as you look at um, uh, dimensions of a system as you increase it. The response to flooding is one of those dimensions. And um, uh, as, as you are very well aware, um, the traditional science is focused on single-scale behavior, and that uh, means that, you know, sort of below that scale, things are smooth, and above that scale, things have a particular structure. Um, and um, one of the key discoveries in complex systems and the roots of complex systems are fractals, that don't have a characteristic scale. So you can look at them at many scales and they look kind of the same. And um, more generally, um, what we have been uh, working on and thinking about is multi-scale understanding of systems where you think about the system in scale. 
because, for example, people are not scale invariant. You know, people have in size. You, know, you don't have tiny people and bigger people. And our muscles are not multi-scale. Really. We have parts of us are kind of multi-scale, like the vascular network is like a tree that has many different scales. Uh, but there is a characteristic scale of the smallest blood vessel. So in all of the cases, um, their scale is an important dimension, but you have a mixture of scales that are particular scales and fractal type behavior or more elaborate dependencies as a function of scale. So that's really totally an essential part of thinking about complex systems. So this reminds me a lot of uh, the subject or the main work that we do at Blue Frontiers, which is... Uh, so basically, systeming consists on increasing the capacity of human societies to adapt in the face of one very eminent and eventual, unfortunately, large-scale crisis, which is flooding sea level rise. Sea level rise, and how can we create coastal communities that are uh, less fragile in the face of this unfortunate future? So... Uh, Basically, in systering, we design systems that are uh, modular so that we can build and build and expand and expand in a, in a scalable way, depending both on the environmental conditions of, of the specific place, but also on the political conditions. It's really interesting. So if you have these self-assembling platforms and uh, let's say people in this cluster are not satisfied we how the governance is being provided governance as a service not as a as we know them today um, then this cluster or platforms in this cluster would move to a different place and that also creates a, a dynamic geography i want to ask you what do you think of the concept of dynamic geography and trying to improve decision making by means of floating with your own houses or Platforms. So, one of the questions that one, I mean, so, so having modules enables you to rearrange them and to create other structures. But modules are also having a particular scale. Yes. So, one can ask whether that scale is serving the challenge of the multi-scale structures that may be needed? And the answer is, you know, not so simple to address. Um, but in general, systems are formed out of some form of element that is combined in different ways. Um, but to think about the modules as homogeneous is structures on multiple scales I think yeah so um, that's part of it but the the other part of it um, which you refer to but maybe we should talk about this separately is the social organization and how people organize into social systems that are effective at dealing with challenges that happen. And what insights or what can complexity teach to the type of organizations that are needed to thrive in this increasingly complex world? So there are um, a few really ideas. Okay. Um, one is Ashby's Law of Requisite Variety. Yes! Yes! which says that a system has to match the complexity of the environment in which it's in. Yes. And um, uh, that can be generalized to think about a multi-scale law, which basically says that at different scales, the system has to be able to respond to the challenges that it's facing. 
And so um, if you have individuals, they can respond to challenges at an individual scale if they're autonomous. But uh, in order to respond to challenges at a large scale, people have to be organized into larger scale entities that have the ability to respond at those scales. So that's one key insight. Another key insight is that um, there are not just these one challenge of the flooding of coastal zones today. We are facing many different challenges in society. Um, challenges that have to do with social disruption, but also just the ability to um, earn a living in a world where there are so many different things going on, that there is competition for work or for markets or for all kinds of things. And the fact that the world is so connected, network, right, it's become much more connected, creates for it, you know, because of certain reasons, it creates a very high complexity at all scales. Yes. The complexity is high for large social organizations like countries, for companies, um, and also for individuals. And so in dealing with the complexity of the environment, which is happening at all scales, we also need social organizations at all scales. That the, the third insight is that the characteristic organizational structure, and this you're, you'll like very much, <laughs> the characteristic organizational structure that has really been the dominant structure of society for thousands of years, which is a hierarchy, uh, doesn't work when you have highly complex environment. And the reason is that the control process of individuals at the top is unable to communicate with different members of the organization enough to enable the decisions to be affected, even if you could make the right decisions. But there's also a fundamental challenge of even making good decisions. Yes. And so hierarchical organizations are systemically failing today. And what's happening is that there is a development of much more distributed organizational structures and that's true in business very broadly. All of the organizational management change processes are really designed to distribute control. So the challenge that we face is to deal with public sector organizations. Mm-hmm. Yes. Healthcare organizations are having a tremendous problem dealing with complexity educational institutions, and increasingly, obviously, governance. And that means that we have to find new forms of governance that will enable us to deal with higher complexity environmental challenges. But here's a point that is different from what you said, which is that the flooding is not a really a high complexity challenge. There are local correlates of it that may be complex, but it's a large scale thing. So for that, central control might work. You know, I mean that's what you know the the, the melting of the polar ice caps is something that could be dealt with by central decision making. Yes. And, and similarly, organizing people to deal with, you know, the challenges of climate change. To first order, it's a large-scale challenge and not really a complex challenge. So most of those kinds of issues 
don't compel us to think either in terms of distributed control or in terms of alternative governance structures. But that doesn't mean that we don't need them. All right, so we need them. And um, the next question is, what do they look like? Yes, what is your, I don't want to say ideal topology for addressing these type of problems, but what type of organizational structure can perform better than three topologies or hierarchical systems? So one of the real challenges is to realize that all of the traditional ideological views of the society are not very effective from this perspective. And that includes, you know, dictatorships and communism. It includes democracy because democracy is representative. So you put someone in charge, whether they're put there by right of king, you know, of inheritance, or whether you put them by a committee or a small group like communism, or whether you have a voting system like a democratic election, they all kind of put someone in charge. So, um, you know, it used to be in the old world where things were simple. If you had a problem, you solved it by putting someone in charge. Today, that doesn't work. On the other hand, other ideologies that focus on individual autonomy and independence are also not because individuals can only deal with individual level challenges and they also are limited in the complexity that they can bring to bear just like hierarchical organizations because there's only one person who's making decisions so I don't know I mean some of the ideas that you're working with in your organization are of those kinds and so the question is what do we really need And the answer is we need to understand what complex organizations really look like. And one of the key things is they're not homogeneous. People are not the same in a complex social organization. They're different. Different people are different. By the way, I think it's kind of obvious that different people are different. Right? I think so too. But... Turns out that people don't think that diversity is an actual characteristic of human social systems. So I think we, you know, we have this respect in certain parts of the world for individual autonomy and differences of opinion. But it turns out that that's not even enough. What we really need is multi-scale differences which means that we need to have individual differences, but also group differences, all the way up to the scale of civilization as a whole, which if you think about it is actually what we have. We just are kind of upset by it for some reason. At least many people are upset by it. Because kind of we believe, you know, if something is good for me, like democracy or, or, or free rights or, you know, whatever other, kind of idea we have about what makes life better or good or, 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 or just or so on, we tend to think that everyone should adopt that approach because, well, you know, if, if it's the right thing, then everyone should have it. But different people have different ideas about that. And not only do they have it at the level of the individual, like, you know, hey, I like to go to, I don't know, basketball games and you like to go to soccer games. Yeah, apparently, I do. <laughs> and by the way, you know, maybe it's not soccer, maybe it's not basketball, maybe it's football, or maybe it's baseball, or maybe it's something else. But whatever it is that we individually are choosing to do, the fact that we have those differences is not enough. What we have is we have groups who believe in different ideas that are going to do different things and are doing different things. And divergence of ideas in the world is growing and not shrinking, which is kind of surprising 
when everyone is talking to each other, right? Because you might think that as everyone starts talking to each other, they'll all come up with the same idea because they, they will influence each other. And that, in fact, is a, is a really important model of how social systems work. Uh, but it isn't happening for the world where people are going in different directions. They're going in different directions religiously, value-wise, in terms of professions, and in terms of you know, all kinds of other aspects of value and, and functional behaviors, which are economic or social or, you know, whatever ideas that people have. So, so the, um, the real challenge that we face today is to figure out how this, or, or maybe not to figure out because it's just happening, how this amazingly complex puzzle, you know, like a jigsaw puzzle, is coming together in order to make a picture which has over here one kind of thing going on and another kind of thing going on. And it's... it's and, and so that's one part of it. But I didn't really yet address the decision-making issue. How do we make decisions that are going to be effective? Today, there are companies that make decisions about what companies are doing. Yes. <laughs> and there are countries that are responsible for making decisions about what countries do. Now, that's not entirely true. In the United States, we have federal governance. So there is the federal government, the state government, the county government, and the municipal government. And it turns out, and that makes sense, that in a multi-scale world, you need multi-scale governance. Yes. So you need to have organizational structures at different scales not just at the individual level, because things have to be organized in larger decision-making collectives in order to be able to do things and respond to challenges at larger scales. But what's happening today, I think, and really makes sense, is that the national level of governance is going to weaken in favor of local governance and global governance. Yes. You have to have a balance because if we went back to just local governance, then people would pack each other and sort of conquer each other and they would take over. You know, that's the power play locally. So we need at the very least the global governance to protect the security of the local autonomy to make local decisions. And that's a really key challenge because we don't yet have that global system. And there are many other things, like maybe climate change, maybe other things that are happening at a global scale, like you know the food prices issue that we talked about before, because food is a global thing. And the markets are a global thing. So there needs to be some decision-making at the global scale. And a fair amount of the decision-making that's now maybe at a national scale, like in places where the governance is not functional, which may include the United States, but may include other places like Syria and Libya. And, and, you know, I mean, there are people that are trying to break up Spain and, you know, all kinds of places. And people are really worried about it. But part of the point is that the, the, des the, the devolution of power it doesn't have to be national in its arrangement, right? It doesn't have to be absolute or or it isn't appropriate that it be absolute. And, and you know, the U.S. has federal government, so does Switzerland as federal governance system. And many other places could benefit from those examples. I, from my scientific studies, don't really know what exactly decisions should be local and what decisions should be global, but you can get a first stab at things by looking at what people care about locally that they value, you know, like, you know, municipal ordinances and, you know, where to send their kids to school and stuff like that. Um, and, um, 
and whatever public space issues have to be balanced between the local groups. So we've actually done very direct study on ethnic violence. Yes. What we found, yeah, what we found is that there is a particular scale, a size of a community, that if it's, if you have um, a mixed community inside that size, people kind of get along. And if you have a very large community of one type, like one ethnic group or one value system, let's say, or one lang you know, language, all kinds of you know, identity, then people arrange their rules so that people are happy within that value system. But if at exactly that size, which is about 20 kilometers, you have a patch and it's surrounded by people of other groups, then you have conflict because people try to impose their values in the public sphere and other people are interfering. And it turns out that you can solve that problem, and it's been done in Switzerland, by just making kind of local political autonomy or creating boundaries like mountains or whatever, barriers, so that the local group has enough local autonomy to have what they want in their area. But it's still a collective thing. It's not at the individual level. It's really a collective entity. Um, so, so that begins a discussion. There's one more key part of the discussion. Okay. So the other key part of the discussion is how do you have global governance or even how do you have, you know, sort of some degree of national governance or even how do you have any kind of local governance if the complexity is so high? In fact, it goes all the way down to how do we deal with the world as individuals if complexity is high. Remember, because that's still a challenge. What is your answer? So it turns out there's only one answer. Okay. And that is that we have to form teams. Uh-huh. What type of teams? Well, that's part of the challenge. We don't know. Oh, the challenge that we face is to figure out what kinds of teams are going to be effective at different scales, at the individual, at the municipal, at the national, at the global levels. And at the global levels, we're talking about the interactions between these large groups and decision-making of the collective for everybody. And as you go down, there are different things that are going on in different low places. So the answer doesn't have to be the same in different parts of the world. You know, so um, there's, that's the challenge that we face. So if you want to engage in the challenge, then, you know, that's what we have to do. Yes. This reminds me of the um, extrapolation that sometimes is done in complexity from the behavior of biological systems with human social systems. And I know that uh, not in all cases it applies directly, but what can, for example, cell biology teach to political decision-making? Well, the model that, that captures the ideas that I've been talking about, which is a, it is a, biological system that satisfies these constraints that we've talked about is really the properties of a multicellular organism or of a cell of its organelles. It's a system that has various parts that are doing different things. You can think about the biological behavior of cells as being corresponding to the value systems of people which affect their behavior and decision-making choices. And tissues are making decisions and um, uh, all the time about what they're doing together and cells are doing decisions about what they're doing individually. Yes. But the cellular organization into a multicellular organism creates the opportunity for collective decision-making like in the brain, the neural system is making decisions 
it's centralized in a sense because it's not everywhere in the body is not the same and not each cell does exactly the same thing right or same kind of thing even um, but together the brain with 10 to the whatever it is 15 14 16 neurons is a system that makes decisions that are more complex than any of its cells could make and that's the kind of organization that we need today uh, to make decisions for the human social collective and we're kind of moving in that direction yes. right by having you know all kinds of collective social interactions you know the transition from you know social conversations and consultations and technologically assisted interactions that are enabling decision making through social media and through platforms of shared engagement and other systems those are sort of pointing in a direction of what society presumably will adopt but that's not the whole story because people have to learn how to interact with each other I agree. I agree. in difference because of differences we have to learn because when two people don't know the same thing and are responsible for different uh, aspects of decision-making action you have to really learn how to work together in a different way exactly and go ahead, you say. No, no, you. <laughs> I was just going to say that this is connected to what you've written of how communication and seeking interdependence is in groups makes the final decision making more robust than if you are going to, for example, if you consult different individuals within a team for different things. Make wow. it really important so working together synergistically in that way is a transformation that we're only beginning to explore and that's the social transformation that is seems to be happening and how we how we get there is not entirely clear but that that's kind of where we need to go in some sense is 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 clear so we kind of all have to get together and stop fighting each other and start, you know, figuring out how to work together and not because we agree with each other. And even not because we agree with each other about really basic things, because that's clear in what's happening in the world today. So there may be very basic things that we don't agree about, but it turns out that those differences will end up being really important for our ability to work together. Yes. So, um, uh, and the fact that it's happening at all scales means that it's something that we really need to learn how to do well. That is very, very true. Do you vote in presidential elections? That's a really interesting question. <laughs> so, I I don't know that it matters that. I, whether I vote or not. It turns out that there are very interesting reasons that everyone should vote in an election because otherwise there's extremes that dominate. And we have a, another paper about that, about the effect of social fragmentation on democratic representation and extremes uh, and um, that's kind of part of what's happening today. So one could argue that it's important to, and then one could say, well, if democracy is failing, then maybe we don't need to be involved. But it's not clear how we solve the problem. It's not clear whether the democracy will morph, become something else, like in England, you know, king. You know, the queen is still around, but there is a democracy, right? 
maybe the democracy will stay around, but we'll kind of figure out a way to make something else be the way of power and and, and the system decision-making happens. Um, but the, there are other possibilities that the system will collapse. Um, one thing that I will say, and this again is that we've written papers about this, that violence ultimately can't be the way the revolution happens. No. Because no. violence destroys structure. And when structure is destroyed, the, the default is to create the simplest structure, which would be a dictatorship. And so we have to transcend the governance structures and the other social structures that we really have relied upon and have served us well in some ways, at least up until this point. Um, but in transcending them, hopefully we get to a different context. And there are some really important ways to understand that different context that may help. In thinking about it. One is that it's a context where individual value is if more respected than in a democracy. Right? One of the reasons that we consider democracy to be important is that it values individuals as opposed to a dictatorship or communism and therefore we believe that the well-being of individuals is promoted in a democracy over other governances. I would hope. One might hope. It's not always true, by the way. I mean, you know, fractal democracies let a lot of people fall between the cracks in ways some other things might not, right? You could argue about ideological benefits in this context. But the point of... Uh, of a complex collective is that it relies upon individual in order for its health and well-being to be, to be in existence. Now that's a complex statement in itself, right? But, but in doing so, it has to support the individual's health and well-being. And so individuals to be valued and their capabilities have to be Let's call them exploited. Exploited is a bad word, right? But the positive side of it is that individuals, in doing what they do well and can contribute to society, can be fulfilled, right? They're, the relationship between their capabilities and what they are doing should be proximate. Yes. So the fact that individuals are different from each other or have different values that has to fit with what they're doing because the collective benefits by having the individuals do the things that they do well in the context of the collective. So the hope is, and this is part of the picture, that in going through this transition, we learn how to interact with each other, positively supporting each other, creating environments in which we all flourish and are able to realize the potential of our contributions. And that sounds very nice, and I really hope, and I, 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 I mean, there is a level of which this is a scientific statement. I think we can, we can, um, we can guide our efforts based upon that understanding, and that may help us achieve it with less suffering and difficulties along the way. Yes, I completely agree. I hope so, too. Um, In the meantime, we have a lot of difficulties to overcome. <laughs> yes, but one thing that complexity teaches us is that, well, complex systems are history dependent. So I hope that if, if time series right now, we cannot go back to a previous state of, to where we are right now. Um, what role, for example, do you see that AI plays in the future of governance? So I actually think, and you know, I've, there's work that, 
we can talk about, um, that the AI and human, artificial and human intelligence, are really good at different things. Yes. And so we will better identify which things should be done by algorithms and which things should be done by people. But the key thing also is to realize that when people talk about comparing an artificial intelligence with a human being, human beings are now becoming this global collective. And in doing so, we will together become much, much more capable. And AI will really become an integral part of the infrastructure. Yes. Rather than a competitive entity. In that sense. doesn't mean that, as with every technology, there are risks. Biotechnology has risks. Artificial intelligence has risks. And people tend to create these scenarios that I don't think are the right scenarios, but that doesn't mean that I dismiss the risks of engaging with the technologies that we're engaging with today. They come from a lot of anthropomorphization, no? Correct. For example, but we can... Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, you, you. The more you talk, the more enlightened I get. So please keep talking. <laughs> so there is a story about the, um, the energy revolution, right? The early industrial revolution of the competition between people and machines. Oh. Right. And... and um, One of those stories was is the, the myth of uh, uh, John Henry. If I remember correctly, John Henry was the one who was very capable of building railroads. So he would take a big hammer and bang the nails into the ground to hold the, the tracks in place. Okay. And the story is that when they created machines, these are you know, uh, machines that would hammer the nails into place, they created a competition between John Henry and this new steam engine. And they, 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 they hammered all day and whatever, and, and then uh, John Henry won, but he fell dead. Right. So it's a, it's a sad story, but the, the message of the story is about the replacement of people with machines. And the, the idea that people are going to be replaced by machines has been around for a long time. Now today, we know that steam-powered machines are good at things that people do some things, but that people are also capable of other things. Yes. And my understanding is that that idea also applies in what we call artificial intelligence. Yes. That yes. people are good at different things than machines, in this case, universal computing machines. Exactly. And that what we will learn over the next few years and decades is how to separate the kinds of things that people are good at from the kinds of things that machines are good at. But the ultimate system is a combination that will combine the things that people are good at, just like we're combining the things that different people are good at and the different value systems that people are good at. We will also combine the things that people and machines are good at in a way that will benefit the system as a whole. Exactly. We tend to see, uh, same with the environment, we tend to see as isolated from us humans, but when it comes to technologies, we are, we live in social, in a social technical world. We create our technologies, it influences us, then we create new technologies based on that. There's feedback loops. Sure. Positive ones. So we, we should, whenever we come with catastrophe, I think theories about the future, we should uh, always remember that it's us. That's, that's also why the programming is really important. But that's, that's another discussion. Um, how about in terms of uh, cybersecurity, for example? Now that we are talking um, about AI. 
Well, the, the, the short answer is that cybersecurity is a domain that we haven't dealt with very effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we've kind of created a system where security is mostly impossible. And so the underlying structure of the system is really something that has to be changed. Um, we have a paper on that that people can look up. What is your view on technologies like the blockchain? So one, so, you know, every technology, when it's invented, it's hard to know what it will really do for you very often. And um, I think that there is, you know, a, a mixture. I mean, there are people who are skeptical and the people who are enthusiastic. But I think that there are certain things that, one should um, uh, frame to help one in understanding what's happening with it. And um, people are enthusiastic about blockchain in some sense because of a complex systems idea that it's a distributed way to do something. Yes. The, the funny thing is that um, it's a very rigid distributed system, right? It's not really an adaptive distributed system. And it's not really adaptive in many ways at all. And the funny thing is that things like the amount of currency and so on have to be adaptive. Um, and therefore, a rigid system may not be effective in this context. Now, so my impression is, is that people are thinking about it kind of in the wrong way for per- many purposes. That doesn't mean that it won't be useful. It may turn out to be extremely useful. But yeah. my guess is that it'll be useful for things that people are maybe not pursuing today and maybe not useful for the things that they are pursuing today. So we'll see what develops. Yeah, I was looking today at how many nodes hold more than 50, hold at least or more, I don't recall well, 51% of each one of the main cryptocurrencies and the number of nodes is still very, 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 very small. Sure. Yeah. So I, I agree. Hi, Yanir. Thank you. I think our time has finished, but you can judge by how the sun is on my face that throughout this conversation, thanks to you being here, our amazing guest, I just became more enlightened, and I'm sure our, our listeners, too, even if, if they are just listening to us instead of watching us. But thank you very, very, very much for your answers. And it's been a pleasure to talk with you. No, it's been more than pleasure mine. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Blue Frontiers podcast. To learn more about our work and find out how you can support the project, visit blue-frontiers.com or visit our social channels. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Blue Frontiers, or shoot us a note via our website. If you learned something and enjoyed the show, tell a friend or leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and remember to join us for the next episode. See you next time.